Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes 4, starting at verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And as I saw, all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thanks, Nicole, and I'll just uh, extend my, uh, I was going to say condolences, but, uh, you know, whatever the word is, farewell to Jacobs. Uh, it's not going to be the same without Anna here welcoming uh, me, and uh, never have I been uh, so hugged so many times, <laughs> and never have I seen such distress from uh, turning down a hug, uh, but anyway, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank, thank you um, yeah, that we are a family of believers uh, and even um, uh, when people come and go, we can, uh, we can trust uh, that they go with you and uh, that they go with your spirit uh, and that one day we'll be uh, reunited uh, in whatever way that might be. Lord, we uh, thank you uh, and pray that you'd uh, go with, uh, with um, the Hutchins as they, as they head off. Uh, Lord, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would 
be gracious to us and give us understanding of the world in which you live us, uh, in which we live in, and uh, pray that you would give us guidance through it. Uh, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think uh, all of us um, want to make sense of our lives. Uh, we want to make sense of the things that we experience day in and day out. And yet I suspect that for most of us, we're not, when we talk about that or think about that, we're really not answering the question or trying to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? That is, for most of us, the question is not that big picture question, the philosophical question, what does my life mean? But for most of us, the questions are more immediate. Uh, things like, you know, what is the meaning, what am I to make of this event, this circumstance in my life at the moment? You know, why is this happening? Uh, what am I supposed to make of that? What is the point of my work, this work that I have to do today? Uh, maybe why am I suffering or why are those people around me suffering or why are those people in the world suffering? Why am I so aligned? Why is the world falling apart? There are, there are particular things that we focus our attention on as we try to make sense uh, of the world. And really, uh, in this part of Ecclesiastes, that's what the, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is doing. He's looked in the first three chapters, and we've looked at those over the last few weeks. He's looked at the big principles uh, about life, and he's given us, if you, if you like, the structure on which to build those things. But here in this chapter, what he does is get down to applying those big principles to particular aspects of life. And he thinks about four things that is suffering, work, loneliness, and governments or rulers. So the first thing that he considers is suffering. And what he says about suffering is, is actually very, very troubling, very sad. He speaks about, in verse 1, the oppressed, and he says, I, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. A power was on the side of the oppressors. Uh, and, and it's this tragic picture of uh, the oppression and the difficulty, the suffering that some people face. And as we look around our world, we can see that. It's not restricted to the pages of the Bible, but because of the news and the media, because of the access of information, we can look around the world and we can see the ways that people are suffering from oppression and injustice. The uh, International Justice Mission uh, estimates that over 40 million people are in slavery around the world. Uh, so that's maybe the sort of, you know, roughly about twice the population of Australia in slavery across the world. One in four of those children, uh, people are children. Uh, so 10 million children in slavery across the world. They tell uh, stories of children like uh, Foley, who was uh, forced to work 19 hour days. Uh, on his uncle's fishing boat. They tell other stories of uh, people who are forced into prostitution uh, and other horrific circumstances. Uh, we might think of that when we think of oppression. We might think in history, we might think of the, uh, the gulags in Stalinist Russia or we might think of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Uh, we might think closer to home. We've, uh, we've prayed this afternoon for Australia Day uh, and we've thought about uh, the last year the, the, the hardships that have been brought on Indigenous people uh, as a result of uh, colonisation from the British coming to Australia. 
Uh, there's a terrible, there have been terrible injustices and oppression uh, in this country brought on Indigenous people. We can look at the terrible blight of family violence. There are, there are people who are oppressed in their own home. There's no escape for them uh, from that reality. Uh, what the teacher says is, and what we can see, is that all over the world there are people who are crushed by oppression uh, and whose sorrow as a result of that is deeper than we can imagine. And that suffering and that oppression is so overwhelming, so profound, the teacher says, that for those people it can seem as though it would be better to be dead uh, than, rather than living, or in fact even to have never lived at all. So he says in verse 2, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Now, that's a, that's a terrible assessment of life, isn't it? But what the writer is doing is, is the teacher is empathising with those who have experienced terrible suffering. For some people who have experienced terrible suffering, that is, their suffering is so bad that they would rather not go on living. There might be some people here today even who feel like that or who have felt like that. Uh, that we may, some of us may find ourselves in situations like that in the future. Uh, who knows what tomorrow will bring? But the teacher is right to say that's what it can be like for people. But what do we do with that bleak, that terrible kind of observation I think we need to remember that the teacher here is not uh, trying to give us answers as much as he is trying to open our eyes to see what life is like for some people. Uh, it is true, it is simply true that there are some people in the world uh, whose suffering and oppression is so uh, difficult that they long for death. Uh, nevertheless, in the context of what the teacher has said, uh, he, there is an answer to this injustice. There's a better answer, if you like, than that observation uh, of that longing for death. Uh, in the section just before this one that we looked at last week, the answer that the teacher gives, that God gives, is that the injustice in this world will not be forgotten, that this injustice in the world will be uh, brought into judgment. Every deed will be brought to light. The evil of Stalinist Russia will be dealt with by God, even if those people died with no repercussions in their lifetime, they will face judgment. The evil of the Nazis will be brought to light by God and those people will face judgment. The evil that we may have tried to bury in our nation's history, the wrongs done to indigenous people, that evil will be brought to light the evil hidden within the four walls of a family home. That will be brought to light. And all those deeds will be dealt with justly by God, either by those people suffering themselves for an eternity under the just wrath of God or 
by those people, uh, by Jesus taking the penalty for those people who have put their trust in him. But either way, the Bible says God will see justice done. The good news of Jesus gives us another hope as well beyond justice, and that is also that God understands. God is not indifferent to what we might suffer. The good news of the gospel is that whatever we might be going through, God is not indifferent to that because he has sent his own son, Jesus, into the world to suffer. Jesus suffered uh, on the cross. He suffered unjustly. He suffered oppression, though he did no wrong. He died one of the most brutal deaths in the history uh, of mankind, one of the most brutal deaths that it's possible to die. Jesus knows what it's like. God knows what it's like for us to suffer. He's entered into our suffering, suffering into our oppression. He's died along with us, but more than that, he's died not just with us, but for us. He's died to rescue us, uh, to rescue those who trust in him from the judgment that awaits us, the judgment that we deserve. And one day, God promises that Jesus will return to uh, completely deliver us from evil and injustice, both the evil in the world around us and the evil that lives within us. Yes, the world is full of suffering, and if we see that only in human terms, as the writer does in these first few verses of chapter 4, if we see that only in human terms, it is hard to cope with. But when we see it through the lens of God's ultimate justice, when we see it through the lens of the good news of Jesus, then we can begin to find hope, a better hope, in the midst of cruel uh, and unjust suffering. So the teacher considers suffering. That's the first thing. The next thing he considers, he moves on uh, to work. Uh, He's considered work in some of the earlier chapters, but this time his question is really... Uh, about the quantity of work. You know, in the past he's talked about the purpose, now he's talking about quantity. Uh, How much work is too much and how much work is not enough? And he gives, first of all, two bad options. The first bad option that he gives is working too much. So maybe that's you. You might find yourself working 12-hour days, uh, six days a week, um, or seven days a week even. Uh, Maybe uh, that's your, uh, that's your employment. Maybe you're also just, you've got lots of other things in your life that fill it up and you're kind of doing a lot of non-paid work as well. Uh, maybe you've got a bit of a side hustle. You know, you want to try, try and make, you've got a bit of an internet business, try and make a little bit of money on the side, but that is, uh, that is driving you to work more than you should. Now, the teacher says that the reason that people often work too much is not because they love their work, although that can be true, but one of the main reasons that people work too much, he says, is because they're envious. So it works like this. Someone comes to church uh, in a new car and you see them in their new car and you think, oh, I could do with a new car. That'd be nice. My car's getting a bit old. I wouldn't mind a new car. But the problem is that in order to get that new car, you need to make some money first. And the way that you need to make money, the only way you can do that is by working harder. And so you work harder to try and make more money. You come up with ways, invent ways that you can do things to get some money. Uh, Or maybe you're driving along at night 
and as you drive past someone's home, they have the, the curtains open wide and you can see on their living room wall their enormous flat screen TV. Uh, and they're watching the Australian Open. And you think, oh, I could see the tennis ball if I had a TV that size. Uh, and, and, but if you want to buy that television, you need to work, don't you? You need to work harder, maybe, to be able to afford it. Uh, you might see another kid at school with a new phone and you think, well, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that, you know, that that's better than what I've got. Uh, and so what's the only way you can solve that? The only way you can solve that is by taking up more shifts at work. Of course, envy isn't the only reason that people uh, work too hard. Sometimes people uh, work too hard because they find all their meaning and their identity in work. Others work too hard because they find all their joy in work. Another reason I think that people can overwork is because of fear. So that often seems to drive people who uh, have their own business. Uh, that is, they're afraid about where the work might come from. They're, they they want to support their family, and so they're afraid that they might not have enough work. They're afraid uh, that the work might dry up and they won't be able to support their employees. Uh, and so that fear can lead them to working uh, harder than they can. But the teacher says here, overwork is foolish. He says it's like chasing after the wind. You, you can't, no matter how much you do, you never achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve. You can never have enough. You've never done enough work to have earned enough money to buy all the things that you could possibly ever want, that you could see everyone else, uh, see everyone else having an, an envy. No matter how hard you work, you can never have enough security, never have enough confidence that you have enough to get through the possibility that maybe there won't be enough work. And the worst thing is that the harder you try to kind of sustain these things and to grasp after these things, the more frustrating, the more miserable it is. It's chasing after the wind. So overwork is one option. Maybe that's you. Another bad option is underwork. So the writer says, the teacher says in verse 5, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So the fool just sits at home and watches TV, doesn't do work, or, or sits at home and plays computer games and they could be doing something useful or, or they spend their life on a permanent around the world trip no one's clearly been doing that uh, in the last year uh, but for years before that for decades before that people were doing that weren't they and people would say oh you know what are you, you going to do now that you finish school or finish university oh, just, I'm going to travel the world the teacher says what's the result and he says they ruin themselves. Or quite literally, they eat their own flesh. I never know quite why they, they dampen those things down when they translate the Bible. It's a much more graphic image. Why do they eat their own flesh? Because there's nothing left. If, if you fold your hands and do no work, there's nothing left to eat. At the end of the day, you're left with nothing and you have to find a way to survive somehow. What are they driven to? They're driven, metaphorically speaking, to devouring themselves. Laziness, the teacher says, is the equivalent of chopping off your leg and frying it on the barbie. Now, that might mean laziness in your job, in the job that you have. You might be lazy, you might be underworking in the job that you have. You know, turning up late, leaving early, three-hour toilet breaks. 
uh, or whatever it is. Uh, laziness might mean, you, you know, that you don't have work but you're not bothering to look for work. You, you think to yourself, well, the government's paying, it doesn't really matter, I can survive on that at the moment. Or I can survive under mum and dad's roof. Uh, laziness might mean not bothering to do whatever other kind of work you have before you, like homework, schoolwork, university work. Preferring instead to do just whatever you feel like. The teacher says if you live like that, if you live a lazy a life of underwork, it will eventually ruin you. You will devour, end up devouring yourself. Rather than those two bad options, overwork and underwork, the teacher says there's a better way. He says in verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So here are the options. You can fold your hands, that is, and do nothing and end up devouring yourself. You can grasp with two hands after all the things that you see around you. It's like the child, uh, you know, who... Actually, you know what it's like? It's like being at a picnic uh, or, a, or, or a lunch or something like that and, and someone gives you a drink in one hand uh, and they give, you, uh, they give you a plate of food in the other hand and, and you can't eat it. That, <laughs> you know, you've got two handfuls and there's no way to actually uh, consume what you've been given. It's foolishness. Better than two handfuls is one handful of tranquility, one handful of quietness, one handful of rest. Uh, If you're overworking, God wants you to let go. Uh, He wants you to let go of striving after more and he wants you to rest. He wants you to find quietness. And he wants you to find quietness not just for four weeks between Christmas and the end of January, but he wants you to find quietness as a rhythm of life. Quietness Uh, space for quietness, a handful of quietness each day, each week, each month, uh, and each year. Uh, If you're overworking, God wants you to rest. If you're underworking, God wants you to get off your backside uh, and do something. Uh, He wants you to get off your backside and use the gifts that he's given you uh, to bless others. That doesn't have to be paid work. Uh, But it might mean looking for work, it might mean doing volunteering work, helping out at a community group. God has made us to work uh, and he wants us to use the gifts that he's given us. Uh, Better one handful of quietness than folding our hands or or grasping with both hands. So the teacher considers suffering, he considers work, then he looks at relationships or he looks at loneliness Uh, We're going to be thinking about loneliness in a few weeks in the survey series because that was one of the things that people said that they're most afraid of. They're most afraid of being found on their own. Uh, And the teacher here talks about being alone as well. He he thinks about that. He considers the person uh, who's on their own, who has no one else in their life, but who works and works and works. And the teacher says, what's the point? What is the point of being on your own, working and working and working, producing all this stuff, when it's just for you, when there's no one else to share it with? Uh, there, is, <laughs> there, is, there is nothing much more tragic in life, well, I think eventually you get used to it, but one of the great tragedies in life as a single person, I think, is that you spend half an hour to 60 minutes every night preparing a meal, and then in five minutes it's gone. You think, what on earth was the point of that? You know, it's all this effort 
you know, and then it's gone. And so in the end, you just end up making cheese on toast or whatever it is, you know, baked beans. Uh, but really, in a way, that's what the, that's what the teacher is saying, but in a, in a much broader aspect. What's the point of, of your whole life being like that? Everything, working all this effort for you, but with no one to share it with. What's the point? Now, what's the point if you've got an enormous house, if it's just you? I went to, uh, in Germany, when I was there a couple of years ago, we went to a castle uh, that a financier had built at the end of the 1800s. It was an enormous castle overlooking the river in Bonn. He'd never lived there. He was supposed to live there with his wife, but he never got married, uh, and he didn't really have any friends, so uh, he couldn't really entertain them there. What's the point of, of doing all that work, earning all that money, if you've got no one to share it with? But there are other costs of being alone as well. He says in verse 9, two is better than one. Uh, It's better for work. You can get more done if there's two of you than if there's just one of you. That's because if there's two of you, you can help each other out. Uh, I had to put up a shelf in my garage um, a few weeks ago. Trent Trent kindly cut out all the bits and pieces for me. He said, Carl, you can put that up yourself, can't you? (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. Yes, of course, Trent, I can do that. But, um, uh, you know, it, it took me ages, not because I'm an idiot, but, uh, but because, you know, when it's you, just one person trying to put up a shelf, you have to, what do you have to do? It's a, it's a big, long shelf. I had to sort of prop up one end with some bits and pieces, you know, and, uh, and it took me quite a while to sort of, you know, find all the bits and pieces and be able to do that. If I had have had help, it would have taken me about two minutes. Can you hold that end of the shelf? Thanks. Put it in. Done. Two is better than one uh, because you can get help. They can help you. Uh, the output is greater than the sum of its parts. The uh, Two is better than one, the teacher says as well, because if one person falls over, the other person can pick them up. Think of all those people that you see on the news. We get it heaps here in Tasmania. All these people that you see on the news who get into trouble when they go hiking on their own or, or, or they, or they uh, go... Uh, climbing on their own and whatever it is. Uh, one of the key rules of water safety is never swim on your own. Why, why is that? Because if something goes wrong, there's no, no one there to help you. And yet, uh, in our culture, there's often a kind of a hero- heroism kind of associated with going solo. Uh, people climb mountains solo. They sail around the world solo. But the teacher says, actually... That's folly. He says, pity the person who falls and has no one to help them up. Has anyone heard the story of Aaron Ralston? He was climbing in the mountains of Utah and his arm got trapped in a rock. Uh, And the only way that he could escape was by cutting off his arm with his own pocket knife. Uh, And it's often held up as kind of this great heroic story. You know, of the lengths that people will go to for human survival. But actually, it's a cautionary tale about the stupidity of travelling alone, of doing something actually quite dangerous with no one there to help you. If he'd been there with others, he probably would have escaped with his arm. Two is better than one. And the teacher says three is even better than two. 
Uh, he says in verse 12, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You might wonder where that third strand suddenly appears from. Uh, people sometimes take that to be God, you know, two, two strands and then, and then uh, God is the third strand. And so uh, people preach about it at weddings and so they say these are two strands and God is the third strand. But actually it's a poetic Hebrew device. So what it's saying is that uh, two is good, three is even better, four is even better than that. So probably not the greatest text for a marriage. Um, what, what he's saying is, uh, two is two is better than one because one can suffer alone. The more people you have around you to protect you, to look after you, and, and whom you can look after as well, the better it is. What God wants to tell us is, he wants to remind us that we weren't made to be alone. Uh, we weren't made uh, to be on our own. It's not that it's wrong to ever do anything on your own. Uh, it's not that it's wrong uh, you know, or stupid to go for a walk around um, the Cataract Gorge or whatever uh, on your own. Uh, the point is, the point is rather that we are meant to be in relationships with people. We weren't created to be islands, but we were meant uh, to live not for ourselves, but for God and to live for others. Living for ourselves is empty and pointless, and it's also profoundly stupid uh, and profoundly dangerous. So the teacher looks at misery, suffering, uh, he looks at work and loneliness. Finally, he looks at wise and foolish rulers or governments. In the last section that Nicole read for us, uh, he gives this scenario involving two kings. And he says, he says, you're better off with a young king, you know, like an inexperienced king who's wise, wise enough to listen to others. You're better off with that young, inexperienced king than an old king, an experienced king, who's no longer wise because he doesn't listen to others. You're better off with someone who listens to others than to somebody who doesn't listen uh, to others. Uh, and that's quite true, isn't it? You know, when our political leaders listen to people beyond themselves, when they listen to uh, expert advice, it, the consequences are often positive. We've seen that in the coronavirus. We've seen that as they've listened to people who uh, have expertise in managing pandemics, we've seen that they've done a good job. Uh, we've been blessed by that. The problem is, the teacher says, that eventually that wise king who listens to others, eventually he becomes the old king who doesn't listen to anyone. It's a bit tricky for us to see, I think, in our English, in the, in the NIV that we're reading, but uh, in verse 14, it sounds in our Bibles, the NIV that we read, that it's the youth it's talking about. It's more likely that he's talking there about the old king. So the ESV, another Bible translation, says, For he, the old king, went from prison to the throne, uh, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So he's saying, you know, you're better off with this young king than this wise king who doesn't listen. But but actually, originally, that wise, that old king was actually young too once. Uh, you know, he came to the throne in the same way as this new young king did, but just after time, he forgot the lessons that he'd learned. Uh, the, the point is that, that the same things happen over and over again, that the wise and effective ruler eventually becomes the foolish 
and stupid ruler. Now, the point is that we can't win. With, we are all subject to governments and rulers, but we can't win. Sometimes our governments are good and sometimes they're bad. Sometimes our governments are good for a while and then they go bad. Sometimes our governments are bad for a while and then miraculously they become good. Sometimes they're mostly bad and then they do something unexpectedly good and go back to doing bad things again. Sometimes they're mostly good but then they do something catastrophically bad that ruins everything. And the problem, the teacher says, is that we are completely at the mercy of those who are ruling over us. We have no control over that. And we can't do anything about it. Yes, we can vote. But at the end of the day, once they're in power for four years, they can do whatever they want. We've seen that with the lockdowns. We had no choice. We voted. We vote for the government, but we had no choice on whether or not we'd stay at home for, for three months last year. Even if you have, uh, we all have our own opinions on what the government should do or shouldn't have done uh, in the last year and with everything else in life. Uh, but even if you're a renowned epidemiologist uh, who's an expert in, you know, what to do in, in a pandemic situation, the government still won't listen to you. Uh, they have their own advisers and they make their own decisions. And that will happen uh, whether they're young and wise uh, or old and foolish. They'll make some good choices and they'll make some bad choices. And the teacher says that's just the way things are. That's just the way things are under the sun. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus uh, will come again and establish in a new creation a perfect rule under God. He will put the world right, gather his people to himself. That's our ultimate hope. But in the meantime, we live in this world at the mercy of good governments and at the mercy of bad governments. And to some extent, we just need to accept it, get over it, and get on with living for God in the places where he's put us. We live in a fallen world, and the teacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us of that over and over again. But he plots a course for us uh, through that world with the wisdom of God. He plots a course for us through the dangers of work, through the sadness of loneliness, through the frustration and uncertainty of human governments, He even plots a course for us through the misery uh, of human oppression and suffering. And the path that he plots is largely a path of acceptance. Acceptance of the fact that the world is like that and we are often largely powerless to do anything about it. But more than that, he plots for us a course of trust. Trust in God, trust in the all-knowing, all-wise God who's in control when we're not. Trust in the God who sees us and who through Jesus and his spirit keeps us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we we, uh, want to acknowledge again 
this afternoon that we're not in control of the world. Uh, and Lord, there's many things that we see around in the world that distress us uh, and cause us uh, to wonder, perhaps, about what's going on. Lord, we see suffering and oppression. Uh, Lord, uh, we, we see the struggles and the travails of, of work. Lord, we see the, the painfulness, the sadness of loneliness and the uncertainty and the frustration of uh, good governments followed by bad governments, uh, followed by indifferent governments. Lord, uh, we acknowledge uh, that we're not in control of those things, but Lord, we trust that you are uh, and that you are achieving your purposes in all these things. Uh, and Lord, even if we can't understand the purposes at this point, Lord, we trust that one day you will put things right. Lord, that one day you'll bring every deed into judgment, that one day you will remove suffering and oppression from the world when the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, Lord, that, that one day you'll, you'll take away uh, the uncertainty of bad governments. Lord, we pray that you help us uh, to trust in you in the midst of those uncertainties and help us to live wisely for you uh, in the present. Lord, keep us uh, from going solo. Uh, keep us from uh, being driven by envy to overwork. And Lord, keep us from being driven by laziness to underwork. Lord, uh, we pray that in all these things you would help us uh, to trust in you and in your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.